Hi there, my name is Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode, we looked at Real Sociedad's wonderful start to the La Liga season, which has seen them top the table in Spanish football's top flight. We dissected Marco Rose's Borussia Mönchengladbach with a particular focus on the wonderful winger Marcus Turam. Elsewhere in Portugal, we looked at Benfica's exciting new front two of Luca Valschmidt and Darwin Nunez. Jorge Jesus has, of course, returned to the dugout at Benfica after his successful spell in South America. We also considered whether Sassuolo, under the expert guidance of Roberto De Zerbi, could out Atalanta Atalanta this season. Some exciting observations there from Michael. So do keep listening to find out about all of that and more. As always, this episode is produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. All that's left for me to say is thank you, as always, for your support. It is really appreciated. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. Rudy Barlow looks somewhat exhausted after bashing out an absolute thesis on Bartomeu's departure from Barcelona, an excellent piece on La Liga lowdown. And Barlow, of course, with his feet well and truly under the table there at that excellent organisation. So do go and check that one out. Uh, Michael Jones as well has started his uh, university course. So the two of them are looking happy for it to be the weekend, although is it ever the weekend in the world of football journalists to be? I, I don't know. Anyway, Rudy Barlow, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm well. I'm enjoying enjoying a well-earned sort of evening without sort of thinking too deeply about anything last night after, as you say, an absolute thesis on Bartomeu. And the scary thing is, as I've said to both yourself and Michael before, I could have included like three, four more pages. That guy is a walking disaster. Um, but you can find more details on La Liga Loden, as you say. Yeah, he has certainly dominated the sports pages in Spain and further afield. So do check out Rudy's article when you get a chance it's a cracking read michael how are you doing how is life treating you down south yeah no it's good thank you it sounds weird to hear down south but i guess you're the only two people i'm talking to in scotland at the moment no it's good i've got there is i'm currently working on an interesting project which it's a bit early to say what it is at the moment but hopefully by our next episode be able to give all the is it a, is it a coronavirus vaccine <laughs> not quite but um, ah, yeah I'm sure it'll be equally creative. exciting yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's similar good importance I'm sure we'll hear more details about that in due course glad to hear that you're doing well though Michael I think we'll get started then with our fortnightly analysis of all the goings-on around European football we have Spanish football German football Italian football and French football to look at but we also have a little look at today uh, Portuguese football with a focus on Benfica, so do keep on listening for that later on in the episode. Anyway, we will start with La Liga, plenty going on there as always, and we've spoken previously about La Liga being more open 
than it has been for a long time and perhaps a little more even than we're used to. During the first six weeks of the season, there were six different league leaders and the last two weeks have seen Real Sociedad hold on to top spot. It may still be early doors, Barlow, but just how good are La Real? They are very good, Ali. They are, and I think Porto, um, who came out last night and was speaking to the media after their 1-0 victory over Azad Alkmaar, beat me to the punch and said they're playing the best football in Spain at the minute. And I can't really disagree with his statement. He, uh, as I say, pipped me there. I was going to make that my big sweeping statement to attract the clickbait in. Yeah, they're top of the league, as you say. They're a point ahead of Real Madrid's. And they've scored 14 goals in their last four Liga wins. Their only loss this season was a very unfortunate defeat to Valencia, just 1-0. They could uh, 100% of equalised in that game too, had it not been for our, our good old friend Var, um, who had something to say about their equaliser. They struggled after lockdown, I think, last season. And some of us thought that Arguacil and Real Sociedad were on good form, but maybe they weren't a permanent fixture at the top of La Liga standings. They've come out and they proved us all wrong. After Martin Odegaard left as well, I think some people were worried that he was maybe the driving force behind them after their dip in form last season. But David Silva's come in and we all know that David Silva's a really good football player and that he's been playing in one of the best sides in football for five, ten, five to ten years now. But he's been absolutely fantastic and they've really taken their game to another level, I think, this season. They've been dominating games as they were last season too, but there's a, I think there's a more of a security about them this season. Even though they're perhaps not putting away games as comfortably as they should all the time, they look like they can take anyone on. And it's sort of recapturing that form where they beat Real Madrid in the Copa del Rey last season. They've got so many options up front as well. On top of sort of David Silva leading the charge, you've got Oya Fabel, who's the captain, semi-regular fixture in the Spain squad, and he's been fantastic. Alexander Isak sort of seen, tends to alternate with uh, William Jose up front as well. Both of them are good options who I wouldn't be surprised to see them sort of playing Champions League football, if not for Sociedad at some point in their careers. Isak, obviously, at Dortmund. And on top of that, I think the worry for me, especially at the start of the season, was that they had they had a really good starting eleven, but I wasn't quite sure about their depth. But they seem to have hit that sweet spot where Aguasil has got his system so well drilled into that squad that they can just throw a youth product in. He'll come in, do the job. He knows exactly what he's doing, where he should be moving. And they, they've just got so much talent there. Another sort of name to watch out for, Ander Baranachea. Just turned 18 recently, I think. And he, he, he looks a, a fine prospect. So, as I say, Lareal, are, they're very good. They're the best there is in Spain at the minute. Meanwhile, down in 12, are Barcelona. Results aside, though, we need to talk about Koeman's beloved double pivot. He seems set on using it, but the combination of Busquets and De Jong doesn't seem set to make it work. It's a real sort of struggle to watch this Barcelona side at times at the moment because they're just so open. I mean, Barcelona have a multitude of problems, and this year, as yeah, we've spoken about it so many times, but this year was always going to be tricky. But that... 4-2-3-1, which Koeman seems so uh, set on using. It doesn't seem to be helping these multitude of problems. And De Jong and Busquets, whenever they've played together, have looked, quite frankly, awful. They, I think the game against Alaves last weekend was really telling in the fact that those two started together 
and Milan Pjanic came on in the second half and it was night and day between Barcelona. Frankie de Jong has played far better at centre-half than he has for Barcelona in central midfield for quite a few games now, which, granted, he's been quite good at centre-half when he's played there, but you don't sign a 70 million centre midfielder to then drop him back to centre-half. And I think Koeman, he either needs to work out a different system because essentially ahead of them, you do have four attackers, regardless of how much work Griezmann and Ansu do defensively. You've got four attackers ahead of Busquets and De Jong who aren't the most mobile. They are not going to shut down those attacks. And unless your pressing is spot on every single time, you'll have a situation like you had against Alaves last Saturday night, I believe it was when it was just people running straight through the middle of Barcelona, like right at their centre-halves. And it was, I mean, Man United have come under quite a bit of criticism, shall we say, for their uh, schoolboy defending against Demba Ba. But it was similarly sort of, you couldn't believe that you're watching a first division side, just it was too easy. And I do really worry about Busquets. I mean, he's been one of the best midfielders that I've seen play football for Barcelona over the last 10 years but I don't know if he's cut out for it I think single pivot on Twitter who's a very good follow for anyone who's interested in Spanish football he pointed out the fact that previously Busquets wasn't the most mobile but he had the intelligence to cover it up and now regardless of how quick he is in his intelligence he's not intelligent enough to cover up the multitude of flaws that Barcelona do have and equally, Frankie de Jong, as I say, 70 million midfielder. Granted, he's still young. He's had a season of adaptation, though. I don't know how many more excuses you can give to him to just be a passenger in a side. Koeman, Ira has to work out how to make those two work or how to make one of them work with Pjanic very fast or he has to change his system. Yes, Paul, uh, some good points raised there. And of course, Ronald Koeman's Barcelona will take on Yakin's Real Betis uh, this coming weekend, of course. I don't know if you managed to have a read of Yakin's recent interview, Barlow, in which he took aim quite aggressively at Ronald Koeman. He was asked, would, would he like to be coached by Ronald Koeman at Betis, I believe, and he turned back and said, no, I wouldn't even want him to be the kit man, which I think is not exactly the best testimonial from the veteran <laughs> Yakin. Quite the character indeed, and he will be fancying his chances of taking aim at not just Ronald Koeman, but that soft-centred Barcelona, as you say, this weekend, Barlow. Anyway, if we cast our minds back, we may remember elsewhere that Cadiz secured a historic victory away to Real Madrid a few weeks ago, with his side spearheaded by the affable Alvaro Negredo. Manager Alvaro Cervera is proving that it wasn't a one-off, winning four out of four away games so far. Just how is he doing it, Barlow? I think um, you remember, I think we uh, promoted it on here a couple of weeks ago, the Mendy de Bar piece that um, I wrote. He was really eloquent in his pre-match presser against Cadiz last Friday they played, uh, which Cadiz duly won 2-0. And he said that Cadiz are the team in La Liga that knows the most, that they know, they have the clearest idea of what they want to do with and without the ball. In terms of who's the most certain of how they want to play exactly what they need to do when they get the ball and when they lose it. Cadiz are the team that are clearest on that. And also he said the fact that they need so little to cause a lot of danger. I think that's where they're getting so much joy because there's quite a few decent defensively organised sides in La Liga. Osasuna certainly 
we've seen as well. Elche had quite a bit of success coming up, but Alvaro Negredo has been absolutely sensational when he's played. He's he's really taken on that mantle of sort of a leader of the attack, and he's not. He's been he scored a few goals, and he's but he's not been prolific. But he sort of knits that team together so well and gives them so much experience up front that I can't do anything but agree with Mendilibar because they're just so well drilled. They're so solid to break down. I think they were being called the yellow wall last weekend because they're just impossible to break down. And I think very few teams in La Liga, and they've, played, they've already played Real Madrid, as you say, Villarreal, Sevilla, very few teams in La Liga look like they've got any idea about how to break them down. And so as long as that continues, I can't really see them dropping down the table too far for a while. I will say as well, they've just uh, added a pretty remarkable stat that they've equaled the record for away wins in La Liga to start a season. Four out of four, they've won away from home, a record that stood since 1961. Real Madrid hold that record. Um, but yeah, sitting fifth, three points off the top. It's a hell of a job Cervera's doing at the moment. Yes, fantastic story they are developing and one to keep an eye on for sure. Well, that was, as always, a wonderful summary of all that has been going on in Spanish football over the last couple of weeks. Of course, Bartomeu's uh, departure from Barcelona is covered elsewhere in Rudy's excellent piece on La Liga Lowdown, as we mentioned earlier. So do check that one out if you're looking for some further reading. I think... This is a good point now for us to take a short break, uh, fill up our water bottles again and get ready to tackle the Bundesliga. We'll be right back. It was a memorable night for Borussia Mönchengladbach on Tuesday, Ali. The Foles recording a 6-0 victory against Shakhtar Donetsk in the Champions League. 3-0 defeat at Dortmund on the opening day of the season side. This Marco Rosa side are undefeated in nine matches in all competitions. What's impressed you most about their early season form, Ali? For me, it's, one of the highlights has been watching Marcus Turam go from strength to strength. I think we're probably all in agreement when we say that we all want him to do well. Uh, obviously, in the mainstream media, he's often referred to as the son of Lillian. And that's okay to an extent, but it does kind of hurt me a little bit when it's constant. It's like, yes, we know we can move on. From that, he's been absolutely fantastic and he had a beautiful interview in France football today, actually. And he was speaking about his time at Gangon in France and he was speaking about um, one of the games in that Coupe de la Ligue run when he got to the final, ultimately lost to Strasbourg in that run. But during that run, they, they beat PSG uh, 2-1. Uh, there were three penalties and Turam had missed one and they were a second penalty and Turam wasn't going to take this penalty it was handed over to one of his teammates and Neymar came up to him and said um, what are you doing you're, you're the leader you, you should be taking that penalty you need to show the way to your team and Marcus Turam was like you're right and, and you, could, you could say that was mind games from Neymar I think it probably was I think he definitely had ulterior motives there but Turam stepped up and took the penalty and scored and, and Gangon went on to win the game and I think you know Marcus Turam still only 23 years of age it's easy to forget that when you look at the maturity with which he plays and I think he plays out on the left side of a three and behind the striker. They tend to play a 4-2-3-1 at Gladbach. And he is just a joy to watch. I know that's a cliche and I do say it a lot, but I love watching Turam's hustle and his bustle. I love watching his ability to impact the game. 
And he does this thing when they win a game. He tends to go across the corner flag and he'll pick a shirt from one of his teammates and he'll wave the corner flag up in the air with his teammate's shirt. And it's that sort of gleefulness that, particularly now, with no fans or next to no fans in the ground, little moments like that just really do hit home just how much we love football and why we love football. So on the one hand, yeah, Marcus Turam has been a particular highlight for me and for Gladbach fans this season. Secondly, I think how they've developed as a team even this season, we saw them lose late goals against Wolfsburg, Union Berlin, Inter Milan and Real Madrid. Now, psychologically, that can have quite the impact on a team. But against Leipzig at the weekend, last weekend, they won 1-0. Hannes Wolf scored poetic when you think that he is, of course, on loan from Leipzig. And there might have been a concern there that as they did against Real Madrid and as they did against Inter Milan, they were pegged back late on. Their hearts were broken. But they held out there and they played so, so well. And then they followed that up with the win, the 6-0 win against Shakhtar. Donetsk, excellent win. And it's just as if they thought, you know what, we've, we've, we've let lead slip in the opening two match days. Let's just score an absolute barrel load of goals so that there's no chance of us losing that lead. So I think that development of the team, even over the course of a few weeks, has been really nice to see. And also as well, the fact that Minshew Gladbach are without one of their most important players, Dennis Zakaria in midfield. He was an absolute sensation last season. Fantastic player, so pivotal to the way that Gladbach played. They've been without him this season and they've managed fine. Um, Florian Neuhaus has been, as, as, as I said about Marcus Turam, a joy to watch. Excellent player. Just so sensible with the ball. Rami Bainsbaini, the Algerian fullback, again, an excellent player. Really exciting, still relatively young. Throughout that Gladbach team, we see players who are at different stages in their career, but who are all so tuned into what Marco Rosa wants them to do. When Rosa took over, Gladbach had been doing fine. They, they sacked Dieter Hecking, and that, and that was quite a surprise. It was last April. Um, Hecking was doing relatively well, but Max Abril, the sporting director at Gladbach, along with the board of directors, decided that they wanted to go to the next level. They wanted to really step up, and Marco Rosa was the man they decided who would be capable of doing that. He's worked with arguably three of the most influential managers in Germany and in Europe this century. He worked under Jurgen Klopp at Mainz and then worked with Thomas Tuchel and then also had the chance to work under Ralf Rangnick at Leipzig. So with those three figures, he's developed this real hybrid style and I think you do see aspects of all three managers in Gladbach's play. And I think it's fair to say that at this stage, what, a year and a half or so down the line, he has justified that decision. They've held Real Madrid, they've held Inter Milan, and you might look at it and say, oh, well, they threw those games away. But all in all, I think they were fairly happy with those results. When all is said and done, Marcus Turan himself said that you can't spit on a point against a great team like Real Madrid, and he was totally right there. They've started the season so well. Obviously, Paul, you mentioned about this fact that they're undefeated in, in all competitions, but for that opening day loss away at Dortmund. And I tell you what, most teams will go to Dortmund this season and lose at the Signal Iduna. So that's nothing to be ashamed of. And they were minutes away from, from winning against Wolfsburg and Union Berlin. They're sitting fifth. Everything about this Gladbach team is looking good. I think the fact that they're wholly owned by their members, 100% owned by their members. As recently as 2007, they were down in the second tier and there was a suggestion of maybe going under financially. There was quite a bleak outlook. 
But now things are looking so much better for the Foles. They obviously got that name from their heyday back in the 1970s as this uh, vibrant team going forward. This team that were so good. Bertie Votes, of course, a name that will bring shivers to the spines of Scotland fans. But he was a very important player in that glad backside of the 70s when they won four, four championships, I think it was. I'm not saying that they're going to go back to those glorious days, but all I'm saying is that there is good reason to be optimistic. And the game against Leverkusen will give us a real indication of just how far they have come. Yeah, great things happening at Mönchengladbach, and it's great to see with him. I think Toram getting his first France national team call-up this week. Anyway, Saturday evening, we will see Bayern Munich take on Borussia Dortmund in a mouth-watering top-of-the-table clash at the Signal Iduna Park. With both sides level on 15 points after six games in the Bundesliga, what should we be looking out for in this game, Ali? Yeah, plenty of narratives to be keeping an eye on here, Michael. Obviously, as you say, both teams neck and neck at the top of the table, which is always encouraging and always adds some extra spice to an already juicy encounter. The corporate organisations tend to call it their classicer. I don't quite like that moniker. It's a corporate moniker, to be honest. The classicer for me is Gladbach against Bayern Munich. But that said, this is still one of the biggest games in world football. And right now, probably in terms of quality, the best. So what can we look out for? Um, The battle at either end of the park between Erling Haaland and Robert Lewandowski. Two strikers who are in red-hot form, arguably two of the most exciting players in world football at this point in time. One, of course, at the, relatively speaking, later end of his career and one at the beginning of his career. I think these two players could really be the difference. I think it'll be quite a tight game. I'm, I'm saying this, it'll probably be a 4-3 thriller or something now I've said that. But I think these two players and their eye for goal and their ability to take even, not even a half chance, a quarter chance, a third of a chance, um, their ability to be so deadly in and around the box. Uh, that will be interesting. Obviously, Lewandowski, in recent times and throughout his career, he's been quite you know, prolific in the air. Ellen Harland, apparently, and, unless I've misread this statistic, he's only scored one header for Dortmund. Um, and, and perhaps I've misread that because that doesn't quite seem right. But you think about Harland, for his height, and he is a very tall player, as that clip of Neymar trying to mark him in the Champions League last year reveals, He's more of a raging bull type player. How many goals or how many moves have we seen Ellen Harlan storming forward at a frightening pace and either score or create a chance for a teammate? That's not something we're accustomed to seeing with Lewandowski. So I quite like that kind of juxtaposition of Harland and his raging bull approach to the game. Lewandowski and his perhaps more pragmatic approach. Obviously, he's refined his game with age. I'm really looking forward to that battle between those two. Elsewhere, we could see Leroy Sané make his classicer, to use that corporate moniker, debut. He played a couple of Revere derbies when he was at Schalke and registered an assist and a goal over those two games, I'm pretty sure. But this will be an altogether different occasion for him. He's been fantastic already for Bayern Munich and it'll be interesting to see how he gets on against Dortmund. I hope he'll start on Saturday night and I think Hansi Flick probably will go with him in that starting 11 elsewhere. Gio Reyna um, has had a couple of appearances off the bench, but Saturday will probably mark his first start um, against Bayern Munich. Jude Bellingham was rested against Club Brugge, and I think that speaks volumes of just how well he settled in, that you know, Lucien Favre decided he was worth resting. 
plenty to look out for there. We could perhaps see Eric Chipomoting make his uh, bow in their classicer as well. Chris Richards, the young American defender, potentially as well in there. So that's something else to look out for. And I think we can't avoid the elephant in the room of David Alaba, who, of course, is in well, no longer in negotiations with Bayern Munich as to a new contract offer. It was revealed by the Bayern president um, that the offer of a contract had been withdrawn. So David Alaba now looks like he's going to move move on. The suggestion is he could be going to Liverpool, although certain Real Madrid outlets are saying that he's set to go to Real Madrid and there's talk of Guardiola trying to lure him to Man City. What is for sure is that Bayern, if they were to lose David Alaba, would be losing a key part of Hansi Flick's side. He is obviously so important as a converted centre-half, one of the best fullbacks previously and now one of the best centre-backs in world football. But what we've noticed with the move to no fans and what we noticed when we turned off the crowd noise is that David Alaba is one of the most vocal members of that Bayern Munich team. And I think, obviously, Alfonso Davis has been a huge success story and he deserves a lot of the credit for that himself, Alfonso Davis. But David Alaba, slotting into that left side of that back two, has spoken Alfonso Davis through the game and he needs to take a lot of credit for that development that we've seen in the Canadian fullback. So that'll be an interesting one to watch out for in terms of squad harmony and in terms of a potential loss to a much improved back line, albeit they were fairly shaky at the start of the season. But that's another one to watch out for. A, will Hansi Flick start David Alba and B, what will David Alba's attitude be? I'm not questioning Alba's attitude. I think he's a fantastic professional. I think he's perhaps been driven by his agent, Pina Zahavi. I do think that Pina Zahavi has led his client, David Alaba, astray somewhat. I don't see why David Alaba would be well advised to move elsewhere. But Bayern, in my opinion, are quite right to have taken the stance that they have because Alaba was apparently asking for, in the region of €20 million Euros a year, plus a signing bonus. So over five years, it'd be worth about €100 million, Euros, £100 million, pounds, there or thereabouts. They would make a rod, a proverbial rod for their own back, Bayern, if they were to do that. And they would potentially find themselves in a situation similar to that at Barcelona. And Barlow, you, you'll be well aware of this, where the players' wages are just a huge issue. Bayern do not want to find themselves in a similar position. And I think they were quite right here. I think what will happen is David Alaba will ultimately sign a new contract with Bayern. Uh, the Bayern board are sensible. The Bayern board have some brilliant figures on there. One of the most well-run clubs in Europe, if not the world. And I don't think they'll be too concerned about this because at the end of the day, the boy Hernandez can slot in at centre-half quite capably. And there's also the suggestion that Dale Upamecano, who, despite a shaky start, both for club and country this season, is still an excellent player. And the suggestion is that Bayern could go in for him. And I suppose this whole debacle, if you like, this whole situation with David Alaba will give them a head start in planning what they're probably already begun their preparations to sign Dale McCann, but they'll maybe now accelerate those preparations ahead of an almighty tussle with clubs across Europe next summer. Anyway, we will have another short break and we'll be back in quick time to discuss Serie A with our very own Michael Jones. In our previous episode, we spoke about Napoli's title-winning credentials and how tactically they put Atalanta to the sword with a thrilling 4-1 victory. 
Since then, however, Reno Gattuso's side have themselves been ruthlessly undone by an inform and swashbuckling Sassuolo. We have used an arsenal of superlatives to describe an at times breathless Atalanta, but with their alarming displays of late, are the team from Bergamo at risk of being overshadowed by Roberto De Zerbi's side this season, both tactically and in the league table, Michael? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, sort of Atalanta looking at them against Liverpool is a really sorry sight this week, uh, shadow of the team I've been used to seeing and covering. And I think it's interesting because as good as their form has been since we started the podcast, there has been a slow deterioration. I think maybe notably post-lockdown, we didn't see Sipilicic uh, feature too much due to unfortunate off-the-field issues, which a lot of the time Atlanta was still winning and playing well, but a lot of it was down to maybe the increased emphasis on Alejandro Gomez and people looking at that him and Maybe looking back in hindsight now, it's that infinite football debate where you you discuss, you know, is one player papering over the cracks of the rest of the team. But due to injuries this season and maybe that fixed schedule with the Champions League last season and it this season catching up with them, I wouldn't actually say it's a downward trajectory as of yet, but they do need to find short-term solutions to the team's those tougher opponents. Like we said last week, they just got ruthlessly exposed by Napoli, who put four past them within no time. And Liverpool, this time, picked them off more in the second half with a bit of a sorry sight to see for myself, but Diogo Jota at the forefront of that. But it is there for Sassuolo. But I think as, as impressive as Sassuolo were on at the weekend, and we'll, we'll get on to talking to that a bit more, they have shown frailties this season. They had... You know, they are undefeated, but the teams they had defeated prior to Napoli were just Crotone, Spezia and Bologna. And they drawn to Cagliari and Torino. Uh, Torino been in atrocious form again. But coming into this game, what made it so impressive, and I think it's quite interesting when we talk about Real Sociedad earlier with you, Barlow, is that they had injuries to Berardi, Caputo and Juricic and they've scored more than 60% of Sassuolo's goals this season yet and this is one of the many doubts that is, people have uh, leveled at the Zerbi's team is do they have the depth to really keep competing when these players are missing especially in games of the magnitude of facing Napoli but they did so really well they forced Napoli into errors they really disrupted their play but for the best part, I mean, it's that you look at that and you think, is that a defensive performance? No, not not at all. They they're actually really good on the ball. Uh, Manuel Locatelli in the middle, just a sensational prospect. Another player who's right in the bag for this really intriguing debate in Italy over what their midfield is going to be under Mancini for the Euros this coming summer. But I think tactically, it's a bit of a tough one to say. I think that you just looking at two of the most intriguing teams in Italy at the moment but maybe with De Zerbi being a bit newer on the scene and like a lot of stylish managers does seem to have a heavy Bielsa influence on him and that seems to be quite a good recipe for a lot of managers who are seen to take different parts of Bielsa's philosophy and apply it in their very own way and you can definitely see that I'm pretty sure you two have mentioned before about both watching them and being really excited when watching them because they are really good on the eye. I think in terms of the expectations this season, I think Sassuolo could realistically finish higher than Atalanta because Atalanta, I don't think they will get through the Champions League group stage. I think Ajax will, but they should definitely at least finish third. So there is all 
the likelihood that they will have European football, knockout football next year, which is just going to add to this heavy fixture schedule. And Sassuolo don't have any European distractions. So bearing in mind, they do it will take the toll. They can't get those players back too soon, but they will need to do that. But I think Sassuolo, you know, the minimum expectation this season should be for European football, whether that is Europa League or even Champions League, which might be just a bit too much given the improvements made by a lot of teams in the last year or two in Italy. But I guess at the same time, we're living through a season in football with it being behind closed doors for the best part where we should expect the unexpected. So, yeah, you never know. I think all I would say at the moment is just to keep watching this Sassuolo team because they're so exciting. Just looking back at the Champions League game we've just gone, you mentioned Atalanta. It was largely one to forget for Italian teams and Juventus were the only side to record, only Serie A side to record a victory. Just in terms of the old ladies' season so far, the honeymoon period appeared to be over before it had really begun for Andrea Pirlo. However, the return of the highly influential Cristiano Ronaldo has perhaps inevitably led to a return to winning ways. Do you expect a period of consistency now or does trouble still lie ahead for Pirlo and Juve? I definitely expect more of a period of consistency for them than without Ronaldo. And I think it's probably you know one of the easiest comments I'll ever make on this podcast. But at the same time, the, the sort of flaws that we're seeing with Juventus in their opening games, I mean, you know, we, I think when we discussed them with Carlo on the opening episode of that new series, they'd just come off that 3-0 win against Sampdoria and been really intriguing, impressive, some bizarre alternative methods and use of players by Perlo. And then from then, they actually really struggled and they did have the Napoli game awarded to them, but they'd had draws in the league to Roma, Crotone, and then without Ronaldo to Elas Verona. And they'd laboured to Champions League win against Dynamo Kiev and lost to Barcelona in a game where I thought, I mean, it's really weird watching Juventus because sort of looking at that Barcelona game and looking at the games since then, which I will do shortly, is that they can be really bad at times, off the ball especially. I mean, looking at some of the goals that they concede, they just don't put pressure on the opposition. And the amount of times Messi and Dembele seem to get in the final third with acres of space... It was pretty alarming, but at the same time, they were what they were really good at was they do seem to have these moments of genius on the ball. And Morata's goals, yes, he was offside, and he, but he could have been onside for two of them had he just timed his runs a bit better. And there's some re- some really nice play against Spezia. They played some absolutely breathtaking stuff when they scored the goals. Still the same problems off the ball, but if if Perlo, you know, maybe needs to bring in a new defensive coach or something along those lines, but he's got plenty of defensive experience in the team. But it certainly seems more of a structural issue than the individuals at the moment. So that's where it will reflect on the manager. And that's where the test of time is going to be so for Andrea Perlo. Juventus were not, of course, the only tour inside to win on their midweek travels with Torino picking up a crucial domestic win at Genoa to pick up their first three points of the season. Despite that win, Marco Giampaolo's side do still remain in the relegation zone. Can they start to look up the table, Michael, or does it look like Il Toro are set for another painful season battling the drop? It's a weird one for them. Trying to put my finger on it, really. They they have started to show improvements after a really disappointing start. They'd only got a draw against Sassuolo in the opening few weeks. But then recently they lost 4-3 to Lazio. 
uh, in a game where they were three two up until the last couple of minutes and conceded two goals, and that seemed to draw loads of attention from Torino fans and onlookers of Syria because of the use of Belotti. He seemed to be carrying an injury in those last few minutes, yet he was kept on to try and preserve the victory, to which obviously that backfired. And then there was doubts about Belotti ahead of this huge game against Genoa on the Tuesday night. However, he did start and he played a really crucial part in the 2-1 win. It was actually Sasha Lukic who scored both goals in the game, but Belotti was a really big player for them in the game. He set up the second goal. He did have really big chances. And... I think, you know, Gianpaolo, he's a manager we know quite well. He's the guy who Pioli replaced at AC Milan after a disastrous start. And it, I, I do genuinely think this is a good fit for him, this job. So I think going forwards, they are actually starting to show signs that they can play well. And you look at some of the teams around them, you just can't pick up anything at the moment in terms of Crotone, Udinese. And there is reasons to think that they shouldn't really be involved in a relegation battle, especially with Bellotti up top. And um, they'll at least look to get towards lower mid-table before Christmas. Yes, and you mentioned there Sasha Lukic, a player who Scotland fans may well get their chance to see next week when Scotland plays Serbia uh, in their Nations League playoff. Thank you, Michael, for that tour of Syria football. Excellent to hear that Swallow are just as swashbuckling as ever and they might out Atalanta. Atalanta, we did contemplate calling this section Atalanta 2.0 question mark, but we decided that that might enrage, shall we say, some of the more purists in terms of Italian football. Anyway, on that note, I think we'll wrap up Italian football and we will look ahead to our analysis of French football. And for a slight change this week, we're going to have a little look at Portuguese football as well. We'll be right back. In Portugal, Benfica invested heavily over the summer rally and hired the enigmatic Jorge Jesus in a bid to reclaim the Liga Norte title following a disappointing season last time out. They won their opening five games with relative ease before succumbing to a surprise defeat against Boavista. They were not entirely convincing in rescuing a three-year-old draw at home to Rangers in the Europa League on Thursday. Aside from the capsule, are arguably still a work in progress of sorts, but you've been impressed with their new look front too, haven't you, Ali? Yeah, Barlow, and I think it's probably just as well that they have impressed, given the money that they have spent on the pair. Luca Valschmidt coming in from Freiburg in the Bundesliga and Darwin Nunez coming in from the second tier in Spain, Almeria. The two of them have looked really impressive, uh, certainly in the opening stages of the season. Benfica spent big. Over the summer, they really did spend big. They pushed the boat out, shall we say, to bring Jorge Jesus back from Flamenco. Obviously, he did a wonderful 2019, winning the Libertadores and winning the Brazilian Championship with relative ease, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Jorge Jesus had gone out there and had initially been subjected to quite extensive criticism. And there were suggestions that the criticism was bordering on xenophobia and ageism and I can see why people would make those observations, i.e. that the initial response to him going over there was xenophobic and was ageist. But he did really instill uh, an exciting style of football in Brazil that for a country with which we associate such flamboyance, domestically, there's so much emphasis on results that it can become quite dull and boring. I think, Barlow, you would agree with that. You've certainly followed Brazilian football relatively 
closely over the last few seasons anyway. But Georgie's just did an excellent job over there and obviously they were so, so close to winning the Club World Cup against Liverpool. And for Europeans, the Club World Cup is just another annoyance. Or for many Europeans, it's another annoyance. But for South Americans, it carries such prestige. It's massive, it's huge. And Flamenco fans still talk about that famous victory against Liverpool decades ago when Zico inspired them to Club World Cup victory there and then. But, sorry, I've, I've digressed there, I know. Jorge Jesus has been brought back to Benfica as part of Luis Felipe Vieira's re-election bid. He sensed that his presidency was under threat ahead of the election, which took place very recently, actually. And he took steps to ensure that he was not voted out. And one of those steps was to bring in Jorge Jesus. The other step was to open the wallet Quite, uh, quite emphatically, I think it's fair to say, eighty-eight million pounds was spent on bringing in new players. They brought in Jan Vertonghen, of course, uh, and that was in a free. They spent thirteen million on Nicolas Otamendi. And they brought in boy Everton Kebolinha from Gremio, and then Pedrinho was Corinthians, um, and then obviously Luca Valschmidt and Darwin Nunez coming in from Freiburg and Almeria, respectively. So there was a lot of expenditure there. I know they did lose Ruben Diaz to Man City and that brought in some money. Carlos Vinicius is on loan at Spurs now. But there was a lot of money spent on that team. And I think the start of the season perhaps justified that expenditure and the fact that Luis Felipe Vieira was re-elected, much to his relief, I'm sure. And the early signs were good for Benfica. They were waltzing to wins. They looked very impressive in the Europa League. But, and here comes the but, Andre Almeida, the captain, did his cruciates and Alejandro Grimaldo, obviously, was involved at Barcelona at a younger age, um, suffered an injury to his ankle. He took out those two fullbacks and for a side that plays quite an attacking 4-1-3-2, although at times it can look more like a 4-4-2 when Adel Tarat drops back in a little bit. But by and large, it's a 4-1-3-2, I think it's fair to describe it as. So there was a lot of pressure on the two fullbacks to be very good defensively. Um, those two players, Almeida and Grimaldo, dropped out. And the game against Boavista, they lost 3-0. Angel Gomez, who, of course, was rejected by Manchester United and, and went to Lille and is now on loan at Boavista, uh, was marvellous. Really exploited those wide areas where Benfica were vulnerable without their two first-choice fullbacks. I think that highlighted the fragility of this whole project at Benfica. And we saw it again against Rangers. All of Rangers' goals came from poor defending out in the wide areas, I think it's fair to say. And they did scrape that draw. But that's me kind of being slightly negative there. I wanted to discuss and focus on that front two of Darwin Nunez and Luca Valschmidt. I was always a fan of Luca Valschmidt at Freiburg. I loved watching him play, still relatively young as well. But Darwin Nunez, 21 years of age, the Uruguayan, is already setting the header alight. There's already talk of him going to Barcelona for a big money move at the end of the season. I don't know if that's desperation on Barcelona's part or if it's just paper talk or if it's genuine news that he may well be going there. But anyway, his style of play is so joyful. He looks like the sort of player who you would think, oh, he's just a bulldozer who wouldn't have much technical ability, but technically he's fantastic. He had a goal ruled out for a marginal offside against Boa Vista and it was honestly... Such ability, such soul determination to score that goal. And it was almost a shame that it was ruled out. He came off the bench against Rangers last night on the 68th minute and set up the goal to make it 3-2 and then scored the equaliser to make it 3-0. Now, you can question the Rangers defending, but what a player this Darwin Nunez boy is. He did at times look quite 
indifferent towards the game. He looked as if he didn't really care, but he came alive with vigorous effect, with emphatic effect. And I think the signs are that that Valschmidt-Nunez partnership is going to be an excellent one. The two of them relative, well, Nunez 21, Valschmidt I think is 24, 25. They also have the competition of Harris Seferovic, who's got, what, 70 appearances for the Swiss national side off the bench. And Seferovic has scored quite a few goals already off the bench this season. The signs are there for Benfica that they can go on and have a good season, both in the Europa League and domestically. And that's so important for them after failing to win any trophies last year. They won the Portuguese Super Cup, but I don't think that really made up for the horrific end of the season under Bruno Lage at the Estadio de Luz. So, to answer your question, Michael, really impressed with the front two, uh, and it's just a question of whether or not Benfica can keep a hold of them uh, moving forward. But certainly, two to watch out for. Really exciting players. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the season pans out. Um, just moving to France, but I guess with a Portuguese twist, it's a miserable week for Ligue representatives in the Champions League, with PSG, Marseille and Rennes all suffering defeats on the road. Perhaps most miserable was André Villas-Boas's disastrous return to the Estadio do Dragão, uh, which saw his abject Marseille side lose 3-0 to Jesus Manuel Corona-inspired Porto. After having two sides in the semi-finals of last season's Champions League, it looked like uh, it looks like French football has taken one step forwards and about three or four steps back. Yeah, Michael, you're spot on there with your observation there. One step forward and three or four steps back. I'm just going to give you a stat. It's from the wonderful Stats du Foot account on Twitter. Do give them a follow. It is all in French, but fantastic stats account. French clubs in the Champions League are on a 26-game winless run. If you exclude PSG and Lyon's matches, that's five draws and 21 defeats. Added to that is the fact that Marseille, with their loss at Porto in the Portuguese reign, equaled Anderlecht's record from 2003 until 2005 of 12 losses in a row in the Champions League. That is extremely concerning. Marseille just looked so off the boil. Uh, we've seen them change formation to a 4-3-1-2 post Paez red card in the game against Lyon. And that's almost been done, I suppose, to accommodate Mikael Cuisance, who we've already spoken about on this podcast. But Andre Villas-Boas took the decision to bring Paez into the team and bench Cuisance. And we know, we know the potential consequences of not keeping Monsieur Cuisance terribly happy. And Paye was awful. He looked so unfit. We've seen the images of him, and I know it's perhaps unfair to question the player's weight, but at the end of the day, this is elite-level football. Payet's not scored a Champions League goal ever, and he missed that penalty at 1-0 to Porto and really just looked so off the boil. I think France football gave him a 2 out of 10, which is typically harsh on their part, but it does portray just how poor Paye and Marseille as a whole were. Obviously for Villas-Boas this would have stung even more going back to the club at which he is still a social, he's still a member there and he has aspirations of one day becoming president. I'm sure we'll see him managing Porto again in the not too distant future. So it would have stung for him, not just the defeat but the manner of that defeat and it was also quite personal for the aforementioned reasons. Elsewhere PSG again missed a penalty much like Paye and Marseille they were 1-0 up at that point uh, at Leipzig and they lost 2-1 surrendered that one goal lead and that just really didn't look encouraging at all they've um, only picked up three points from the opening nine available to them and they face an uphill battle 
to qualify for the knockouts, which is phenomenal. Uh, and Ryan, we're not expecting anything from Ryan. We just want them to go out and enjoy themselves. But they are quite incredibly out of their depth. And I say that not as a slight on them, because Julian Stefan has done an excellent job there. Um, the young players coming through are extremely exciting. The recruitment there is spot on. But this Champions League appearance, as it was with Lille last season, I think it just came too early in Ryan's trajectory. So they're probably the least guilty out of the three Champions League representatives for France this season. And I would just add that this week was the first time since 2011 when all three French representatives in the Champions League have lost their games. But it's not all doom and gloom. Lille did put in a quite wonderful performance, albeit not in the Champions League, but in the Europa League. Thursday morning, um, or late Wednesday night, France football had described PSG and Lyon's run to the semi-finals of the Champions League as an écran de fumée, a smokescreen for the wider issues that are plaguing French football at the moment. And really, I, I have to agree with them. Uh, you know, the whole media pro issue just now, where they're not paying their, their money across to the clubs and the loans that are having to be taken out with the French government and the fact that PSG are just utterly dominating. There is a lot of cause for concern in France. But there is a shining light, and it's not all doom and gloom at all because we have so many exciting young players coming through domestically. European football could perhaps be better for the French teams, but domestically, I think they're, they're getting there. They're getting there. But anyway, back to the European scene. Lille, what a performance. AC Milan had been undefeated in all competitions since March. They were the form team in elite European football. They had blown aside um, Celtic, they had blown aside Sparta Prague, and they still sit top of Serie A. We all went there, and inspired by Renato Sanchez, they blew them away. Fantastic performance, and I think a lot of French people were ready to give up with the week in terms of Champions League and Europa League results for French football. But by God, did Renato Sanchez and his teammates at Lille rescue what was a quite horrific week. I'm going to just focus on Renato Sanchez for a minute. And I have been a huge fan of him on this podcast. I've spoken about his development and how he has found a home in Lille and how he is adored by the Lille support. He is absolutely worshipped. When you look at the comments section, they love him. He did burst onto the scene to use a Michael Richardism at Euro 2016. He'd obviously signed for Bayern just before that, but he did burst on. Bar was trying to hold in his laughter there, but that is a Michael Richardism, if ever there was one. Burst onto the scene at Euro 2016 after signing for Bayern, and he was good, wasn't he? he was very, very good. It didn't work out for me at Bayern Munich. I remember watching him in person for Bayern Munich against Augsburg. I think it was March and April 2017. We got tickets last minute for the game at the Allianz Arena. Renato Sanchez came on in the middle of a very easy victory for Bayern Munich. Lewandowski saw the hat-trick. Thiago Alcantara put in one of the most impressive individual performances I've ever had the joy of watching in person. But Renato Sanchez came on as a substitute, as I said, and he looked so off the pace. He looked lost. And I genuinely was baffled as to how this boy had set alight the European Championships not even a full year ago. And then at Swansea, it really didn't go well for him. He was plagued, I think, by injuries, it's fair to say. And it looked as if he was going to be another one of those wonder kids who got away. But at Lille, he has found a home. And when you watch him, he's so often demanding the ball from Sven Botman and Jose Font, the back two at Lille. He's so often regulating the game, dictating the tempo of Lille's play. 
and he's still only 23. I think we could be seeing, much like we're seeing with, I suppose, Mohamed Elneny at Arsenal, I know he's now 28, but we're seeing one of these players who actually is very good and was probably written off too early. I know that Elneny's older, but with Renato Sanchez, who's a level above, again, even beyond Elneny, we're seeing a player who I think can, as second shot at it, shall we say, get to the very top. I hope he stays at wheel for a few years yet, a couple of years, because he works so well in that team. Uh, and along with Jose Font, a real important part in the spine, Mike Mignon, the goalkeeper, Burak Yilmaz, up top for Lille. And he has given cause for optimism in an otherwise bleak week for French football. So I take my hat off to you, Renato Sanchez. And with that, I'm going to bring this episode of the podcast to a close. All hail Renato Sanchez. Michael Barlow, do we have anything else we want to add before we wrap things up? Michael, what have you got planned for the rest of the weekend? I'm just going to actually watch quite a bit of football. And like I said, hopefully I can reveal a bit more about what else I'll be doing on our next podcast episode, make it seem all the more elusive to those who have stayed tuned till the end. But um, yeah, you haven't really learned too much more, unfortunately. But Tune in next time and I'm sure you'll find out. We'll look forward to that grand reveal. Barlow, what are you up to this weekend? Any more La Liga lowdown writing or is it a weekend of rest for your typing hands? Um, much the same. I think I'll be watching a fair bit of football and hopefully I'll get started on, on something new um, because yeah, uh, the internet never sleeps, does it? But I meant to take a brief hiatus to uh, visit you in the Bundesliga with the, not their classicer, but Baron Dortmund. Yeah, Absolutely. And tomorrow morning, I'm off for brunch with um, a loyal listener, Robbie Sterling and uh, Colin Granger. So I'm looking forward to that. If the two of you are listening and haven't tuned out yet, then a little shout out for you there. I'll be asking you if uh, if you notice anything special about this episode. Anyway, with that, I think I will wish you, the listener, good night. I will say thank you very much for your continued support. And yeah, we'll see you in two weeks' time. Goodbye.